Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning, Gospel Community Church and everyone viewing this morning. We are live. I want to welcome you to our live stream this morning. And so uh, just, just to give you guys a little bit of picture of what's going on here and uh, is that we were actually just outside of my backyard, but our neighbors popped out in the backyard. It started to get a little noisy out there. So we literally, while the worship was going and uh, while the spoken word video was just going, we pulled everything into uh, our living room. So right now we are live in um, our, our living room from our house. So I want to welcome you to... Gospel Community Church Online. If this is uh, uh, your first time jumping in, uh, uh, just tuning in for the first time this morning, we want to say uh, welcome or honor to have you as our guest. We also want to tell you a little bit about our church and why we exist. So our church's mission statement is to make Jesus the hero. And that's not something that we just aim and strive to do on Sunday mornings, but it's actually something that we uh, uh, see the call for the Christian life to be uh, um, what we're called to do in every area of life, uh, in our hobbies, at our workplace, whatever we're doing, we believe that we're called to make Jesus the hero. And during this time, during this pandemic, um, I know that it's just a weird and, and crazy season and time. Uh, if you're new or coming into uh, uh, Eugene or into this area and you're trying to get plugged into a church, and so we want to help you with that transition as best as we can. And so if that's the case for you and you're wondering what community looks like, what it looks like to get plugged into community, anything like that, please reach out to us and, and allow us to help you um, get plugged in during this time and during this season. Um, we have a couple quick announcements uh, before we uh, jump into uh our series today, Race, Culture, and Reconciliation. So announcement number one is this. It's a big one. August 9th, so mark that date in your calendar, August 9th, we're actually going to have um, a, a meeting um, for all of our church outside. And so that, that location uh, will be posted soon, but the date is locked down. And so uh, there's two locations that we're working on right now, but uh, they're outdoor locations. There's going to be plenty of room and plenty of space for us to uh, space out, keep our social distancing, and uh, we even have little name tags, uh, so Dana Gray, you're welcome, L little name tags that have pictures on them. So there's one that says uh, uh, fist bump, there's one that says head nodder, there's one that says handshaker, and one that says hugger. And so you can put on one of the name tags with what you're most comfortable with. So we're able to keep our distancing and we're able to, yeah, just um, uh, try and provide the safest place that we can. So August 9th and September 13th, we're going to do some some all-church Meaning it's like the first time since the pandemic started that we all get to come together, worship together, sing together, take communion together. So I'm excited for that. So please stay tuned for the location of that. It's going to be posted soon. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm just really looking forward to that. Second announcement is this, is that uh, right now we don't have gospel communities that are meeting. Um, we have some people that are uh, having watch parties and we encourage people to have watch parties um, until the August 9th and September 13th. If you're someone who's interested in hosting a watch party or want to get plugged into a watch party, then please, again, reach out to us. We want to help you get plugged into those. Our gospel communities will start meeting again in September, and so we're looking forward even as a time to start gathering in that way as well. So one last announcement is giving. There's three different ways to give, and we encourage giving because we are a church that, that, that is financially supported by the people that call our church home, people that call it our family. And so if that is you, we encourage you to please keep giving. Um, we need the giving so we can continue to uh, further the gospel here in Lane County. There's three ways to do that. Church Center app is the one way you can do it. That's the easiest way, especially if you're a cash giver. It's just clean, simple, and easy. Number two is you can give online, gccugene.org. There's a give tab. If you want your proceeds to go towards the COVID Benevolence Fund, you can give to that, and 100% of those proceeds will go to that. Um, but uh, th that's the second way you can give. The third way is by check. Make checks payable to GCC. 
and that's post office box 41864 Eugene Oregon 97404 and so um, with that those are the announcements I'm gonna pray but while I pray I'm gonna ask you guys to start turning to the book of Acts because we're gonna uh, continue on in our series titled race culture and reconciliation this is a series that we've started uh, last month and that we're going to stretch out over the course of four months. This is our second teaching on it. Our hope is to con continue to stretch this out um, so that our when our gospel communities meet again, it's something that we can talk about in the context of our gospel communities. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at a good chunk of Acts chapter 8. And so please turn there while I pray. Father, we pray in this just weird and interesting season that we're still in, God, that we would continue to trust that we would trust that you are high, exalted, seated in heaven. You are enthroned and you are in full control, God. Of our mornings that might have been crazy, of our nights that might have been restless and sleepless, God, you are in control of every single aspect. There is nothing that is rogue. There is nothing outside of your control. Every small detail in our lives, every pain, right now that people are experiencing every just nook and cranny whatever it is whatever we're going through in our lives father you are in tune and you are in control you know it all and you are good and i pray those are truths about you father that we would cling to in this time and this season to know that you are not like us that you don't change father that you are steadfast constant and patient that your grace never fails that your love is unending and that the gospel is sufficient Father, I pray that we'd be reminded of the sufficiency of the gospel. We'd be reminded of, of all that Christ has done. And Lord, what you've supplied and given to us. We'd be reminded of who you are and who we are in you. And I pray that it would give us comfort and confidence this morning as we approach the subject at hand. I pray that you would help me, Father, through your spirit and give me words to speak and communicate this morning. I pray that you would minister to all of our people wherever we are at, whatever state we are in right now wrestling with shame, wrestling with guilt, wrestling with fear, wrestling with unknowns, with everything going on in our culture, in our society. Father, we pray for your spirit to minister through your word, empowering and lifting up the gospel and making it known who Christ is and what he's done. We need you, and we declare that this morning. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we left off with race, culture, and reconciliation, with the story of David and the Gibeonites from 2 Samuel 21, we looked at how recognition leads to reconciliation. Today we will be in the book of Acts taking a look at how racism is an ancient sin that God has always provided an ancient solution to. And so I want to provide a little bit of backdrop before we dive into this this morning. What is going on in Acts chapter 8 and what is going on with uh, the Samaritans and the Jewish people? So the, the Jews and the Samar uh, Samaritans have had an ancient rival. And so we, we are titling this series, uh, or this sermon, Ancient Race and Ancient Grace. And so under that, we're going to look at the man, the, uh, the man, the message, and the mission. So ancient uh, race and ancient grace. And then we're going to look at the man, the message, and the mission. And the reason that we've titled that is because we get to see in the text today an ancient problem. An ancient problem that has gone on with uh, the Jewish people and the Samaritans for 550 years. And, and, and even beyond that, it would say it dates back to Joseph and his sons. Um, and, and, and this is something that we have seen that has existed for a long time. It is something that is prevalent in the text that we are looking at today. And without an understanding of just how much hatred and animosity that there was between these two groups of people, we won't be able to understand how big it is and how significant it is to see the gospel go in 
heal, save, and transform the hearts and lives of the people in Samaria and bring Jews and Samaritans together. So this is a group of people that's had a long-time rival. Again, not something that's gone on for 50 years. It's not something that's gone on like the Bloods and the Crips for 60 years. It's not something that's um, uh, uh, gone on like the Republicans and the Democrats for um, 170 years. This is something that has gone on for 550 years. And so oftentimes when things come up in our culture, the book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And so oftentimes we think that this is something brand new and we need to provide a brand new solution to it. Maybe the Bible's out of date and it doesn't speak to this and, and it has uh, no context for what's going on. But the reality is, is that man's sin and, and, and these problems that we continue to see are something that's gone on from the garden. This is something that's gone on for thousands of years and these things are things that repeat themselves. And the Bible always provides a solution. The Bible speaks to this, and the, the Bible today, we can see the Word of God provides a solution, the same solution that God has always provided. Grace. Grace provided not just as some, um, um, uh, like we said in the video, just something floating around or some storehouse like, like we see in Catholicism that, that we pull from. It's actually a person named Jesus Christ who has a face. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But the Jews and Samaritans have hated each other with, with, with an absolute just disgust for one another. So what happened is, is originally... You had the northern and southern uh, um, uh, nations of Israel that, that were divided between the north and the south. The north was Israel and the south was Judah. What happened is the Assyrians came in and they took over the, the northern kingdom. And, and many were carried off in exile, but some were left. And eventually the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom, which was Judah. What happened is after they were released after seven years and brought back, they, they had noticed that many of the Jews that were left behind had, had uh, intermarried um, and what they had done is adopted many of the uh, Assyrians' ways of life, their worship, their praxis, and stuff like that. And so they were just uh, disgusted with them. And so when they started to rebuild the temple, the, uh, the, the Jews that were left there, the now Samaritans, um, tried to help rebuild the temple. And, and, and the uh, um, true Jews, the, the Jewish people, said, no thanks, we don't want your help, we want nothing to do with you, actually. And so from that moment on, there was this just wall that, that, that started to be built, and, and quite literally... And there started to be this divide, there started to be this racism, there started to be this hate that existed between these two groups of people. This, this, this continued on, and this continued on up until this time right here. So much so that we have some maps for you guys of Samaria. What would actually happen is that Jews that wanted to get from Jerusalem back to Galilee would have to travel through Samaria. But they wouldn't step foot into Samaria because, because of the animosity, because of the hatred, but also they didn't want to be made unclean by stepping into their land. So they would actually travel clear around. And so uh, in, in the second picture, you can see uh, the path that they would take. They would cross the Jordan River twice, and, and it's estimated they would double the length of their time to travel all the way around the country of Samaria to get back into Galilee. And so th this is a trip that they took for Passover, but also a trip that they might have taken multiple times throughout the year. They were so committed to not stepping into their country. There was so much hate and so much racism and just so much animosity that they would literally double their length in time. Oftentimes, we're committed to a cause as long as it's for our own convenience. You can see they had a deep level of commitment to their convictions and what they believe was right, that they're willing to double their time. You can see the third picture actually shows, though, there's the route that typically Jewish people would take around, but you can see in the third picture, you can actually see the route that Jesus, Jesus took straight through the country of Samaria, to, uh, um, uh, Samaria right into uh, Galilee. And so, hopefully that gives you a little bit of context. This is something that is gone on for years. 
um, as we see the uh, evil atrocity that's happened with slavery in our country, and we see the impacts of that, which is wars between whites and blacks, as, as we see the wars in religion, even this last 500 years between Protestants and Catholics, as we see all these things, we see things that have continued. And I want us to be clear in this, that the Bible provides a solution. And the solution is the man, the message, and the mission. And so we want to look at that today, starting in chapter 8, verse 1. It, it reads this, And Saul approved of his, of his execution, referring to Stephen, a deacon, who was just executed. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So, real quick before we get to the man, is... Uh, we're going to read through this, and it's a narrative, so we're going to let the narrative speak for itself. Um, we're, we're not going to work through this verse by verse, but what we see right away is that there's, there's this persecution going on. And there's this man named Saul, who we know later goes by his Gentile name, which is Paul, but he is persecuting the church. And, 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 he, and he does this to men and women. And what he is, is he's a passionate Jew. He, he's passionately zealous about um, his Judaism. And, and he sees Christianity, which was known back then as atheism, um, he sees Christianity as something that needs to be radically opposed, and not just opposed, but removed from the face of the earth. And just as an outset, this is something that's important to see. It is a good thing in life to have passions, but a good, a, a good indicator that our passions are becoming something that is leading us away from sound theology is do our passions lead us to actually love people, or do our passions lead us to hate people? Do our passions lead us toward division, or do our passions lead us toward unity? Do our passions lead us toward people and to step into their lives, or do they lead us with j just intense hatred? So much so, just let me ask you this. When you see people, political figures, pop up on TV, is your heart pulled toward praying for them, or is your heart pulled toward uh, hatred for them? And, and, and here's the problem that we need to know and recognize in our day and culture right now, which is something that's been true for a long time, but it's true right now as well, is that it's good to have passions, but, but we mix and intermix too much our passions with our identities. And we make our passions our identities. And I know this from personal experience. I'll share one embarrassing story in just a moment, but I'll share a couple just to give you an example of how much that, 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 that we take passions and make them our identity um, instead of finding our identity to be in Christ, something that was given to us solely by grace. So uh, a little while back, I uh, said that I'm not a big fan of In-N-Out. And it seemed like I uh, in, insulted Lorna because I said, like, In-N-Out's overrated. I think she said, like, you're overrated or something back to me. But their fries are garbage. That's my opinion. Um, and, and, and I think it's overrated, okay? Uh, you can see people, when you make comments like that, they get upset. I'll throw out a few more. Is that I'm not, I, I think Target is, is like, overhyped. And I know that I'll maybe lose, like, half of our audience right now that mostly women. But I don't get the big hype around Target. And sometimes you make those comments and people are like offended or appalled. And then you go a little bit further. Like, I'm not a big fan of the TV show The Office. And then I'm like, I just don't think it's that funny and I don't get the sense of humor. And then we find, you find people that are like mad about that. Then you get into pets, your opinions on pets. You get into politics. You get into all these different areas and you realize there are many things that we are placing our identity in. And then our passions and our identity is getting mixed. And here's the reality is that for Christians, we have an identity that doesn't change. It is unshakable. Christians should be the people that are the hardest to offend 
and we should be people that, that hardly defend ourselves. And here's the reason why. Our identity is set in stone for all eternity. It can never be taken. It can never be shaken. It is held secure in Christ. It was fully given to us by Christ. Even if someone makes fun of Christianity, even if someone makes fun of our identity as Christians, as saints, as children of God, as disciples, which means learners or students, all of that was given to us by Christ, by grace. It is not something that we've earned. It is not something that we've worked for. It is not something that we've performed, which should lead to a ton of humility, which should lead toward a ton of love toward other people. And that is where we should draw our, um, our, our, our greatest passion from is our identity in Christ. And I think right now what we see in our culture is that actually people are much more passionate about politics and a lot of other stuff than who we are in Christ. Rebecca McLaughlin says in uh, Confronting Christianity that we don't have to respect people's opinions, um, uh, but we need to respect other people. And I would say the same thing. We don't have to uh, agree with other people's opinions. We just need to love other people. And, and, and if anyone is going to be uh, uh, offended, should it not be Christ, the one who gave us our identity? And so even if we're made fun of for Christians or pushed or persecuted or anything like that, it's ultimately Christ who gave that to us. And we can see even with Saul later in Saul's conversion that Christ is someone who does get offended when we are persecuted. He, he feels that. But at the end of the day, I believe that our identities should lead us toward a ton of humility, towards a ton of grace since they were given to us, since they're locked secure. That's Paul, that's Saul, that's his passion, that's his extremism that led toward hate, that led toward racism himself to, to, to have people stoned and put away in prison. Now we're introduced to another man whose name is Philip. Verse 4, now there were those who were scattered throughout, uh, uh, who, who were scattered, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed, that word proclaim there is keruso. It is a Greek word that actually just means to do just that, to preach, to proclaim, to tell. Not something that just elders and pastors are called to do. Every Christian is called to preach and proclaim the gospel. Philip, we know little about him other than he was a deacon. We can see this before and we can see his interactions later on in the book of Acts with the eunuch. But we know little about him, but we know a lot about where his passions lied, where his identity lied, and we know that he shared about the man and the message and he did that on mission. And so look at verse 5. Philip, again, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Um, here's what we know, that there's this man named Philip who talked about the man. The man that we know that he talked about was the Messiah. That word um, in verse 5, uh, is, is, is some of your guys' translation is actually not Christ. It's Messiah, which actually means anointed one. So Philip goes down to Samaria and he starts preaching to them about the Messiah, about the anointed one. Why this word? Why does Luke give account to Philip preaching this word about the man, the Messiah? Why not use other names referred to as Jesus? Because we see in John, actually, I think we have a verse for it, John chapter 4, verse 25 and 30, Jesus, traveling through Samaria, runs into a woman. And talking with her, um, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you uh, are speaking to, you, I am he. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, uh, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? You see, the, the Samaritans 
were waiting for a Messiah. The Samaritans only believed the first five books of the Bible were Scripture, were authority. That's the Pentateuch, the Torah, that's what they believed. But even from that, we can see that there's a promised Messiah. There's a man, there's the man that's promised in Scripture that they were placing their hope in, that they were waiting on. How do we know that? Because starting in Genesis 3, we see the promised serpent snake crusher who's going to come. These are all examples from the Pentateuch. After that, we see the king, priest, Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, we see the seed of Abraham promised in Genesis 22, who's, who's, who's also the, the greater Isaac, who's also the uh, lamb, the ram, who is to be slain. We, uh, later in Genesis 49, we see the scepter of Judah, who is promised. We see the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. We see the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. We also see that in John chapter 3, I want to say verse 15, and then also John chapter 12, verse 32. We see that Jesus is the one showing himself to be the bronze serpent who is lifted up. And as Jesus, the man, the anointed one, the Messiah, is lifted up, he and he alone has the power and the ability to draw all people of all races, of all ethnicities, to himself from all different walks of life. And as we keep going on, we see that there's the greater Moses prophet who's promised in Deuteronomy 18.15. But just that, those are just a few examples from the Torah. We can go on and see that he's the promised king from uh, 2 Samuel 7. We can go on to see um, all the promises in the Psalms and the prophets. We can see 300 um, prophecies promising the coming of the anointed Messiah, the man of the Messiah. And so when Philip shows up, he is preaching and declaring about this is the one, the one you guys have been looking for. We too are waiting and looking for the Messiah, the anointed one. This is it. He's the man. He's the Christ. And this is what you guys need to know. And so that was Philip's message. And here's the reality. If we believe the lie that right now um, the greatest solution that we can offer someone is to lift up something else or someone else other than Jesus Christ to the oppression, to the racism, to everything that's going on in our world, we are believing a lie. Philip goes into Samaria. He knows the backstory. He knows what people will think about him. He knows, he knows the way the Jewish people will disagree with him even stepping foot into Samaria. He knows the sort of backlash that he's going to get. He knows that he's making himself unclean. He knows all of this. But he steps foot. Why? Because he himself met the man, the Messiah, the anointed one, the face of grace. Philip met him. And because of his own experience with the man, Philip stepped into a country that you didn't step into. And he stepped in preaching and proclaiming Christ. He didn't talk. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. He didn't talk about everything else. What he simply did is went there and said, I know the greatest need you guys have is the same need that I had. You need the Messiah. You need the Christ, and I'm here to lift him up, to tell you about him, and tell you about all the scriptures pointing to him and what he has done. And as he did that, he also healed, and he performed miracles just like we see Jesus do it. And then the result of that, as we see in verse 8, is that there was much joy in the city. So the result of him going in, preaching the Christ, the man, and telling all about the, the man, the Messiah, the anointed one, was that there was much joy in the city. Next, we get to see the message that Philip preached, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Always be skeptical of people that are, are self-proclaimed all-stars and people that proclaim themselves as someone to be great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Here's the crazy thing. We know very little about Philip. We know a lot about Simon in just a few verses. What we know what Simon was all about himself, his self-glory, getting praise, getting recognition. The little that we know about Philip is who Philip was all about. Philip was all about Jesus and, and the Messiah, proclaiming Christ. And Philip was all about the message, as we see here in the next verse, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached, good word. 
uh, um, preached good news. That's what he did. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Here's, here's the thing. It would have been perfectly sufficient just for Philip to preach the good news. That was perfectly sufficient to preach the gospel. The gospel is sufficient. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message. It is the good news of who? A person. The salvation message is not a theory. It's not some ab abstract concept. The salvation message in the gospel is all about a person who has a face named Jesus Christ. It is about his life. It is about his death. It is about his resurrection. It is about his ascension. It is about how he is um, uh, also uh, redeeming all of creation. And one day he is going to restore all things fully, completely back to himself as he brings heaven here to earth. And so the message that he is proclaiming is the gospel of the good news. The good news operates in complete opposite of the way that our world does. So Philip shows up talking about the man, but then he talks about the message, the good news, the news that's been done. And here's the reality. If you look here closely with me, is that it says he preached about the kingdom of God, which we'll get to in just a second, and the name of Jesus Christ. Why does he now say the full name of Jesus Christ? Why does he not just say the Christ? Because Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Jesus means rescuer, deliverer. So now what he's saying is he goes, he, he preached the message of the good news about the kingdom of God, about the Messiah who rescues, the Messiah who saves. What Philip did in the midst of so much racial tension, so much animosity and hate, is he showed up lifting up Christ and telling the message of all that Jesus does and how he saves, how he redeems, and how he rescues. He, he, he didn't come in with a bunch of other plans, with a bunch of other strategies, with a 12-step process or all these things. He came in saying, I know your greatest need because it was mine as well. I experienced the man and the message and now I have a new heart, and I know the greatest need that you have as well is to hear about the good news of the gospel, all that Christ has done in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, and about how he is the one, and he, is the, or he, he alone is the one who is able to redeem and rescue and save. He also says the kingdom of God. Why? There's only eight times in the whole book of Acts that, that the kingdom of God is mentioned, and it's mentioned here. Why? Because the kingdom of God is all about uh, as, as we see even in the book of Luke. It's all about the outcast. It's all about the degenerate people of society becoming regenerate people who are followers of Jesus. It is all about the, the lepers and the gross people and the people that society has deemed just unworthy and gross and just unclean people you don't touch. Those are the people that Jesus loved. Those are the people that Jesus pursued. Those were the people who, who had Jesus' heart and affections. It was the oppressed. It was the broken. He loved them. He stepped toward them. He touched people. He ate with people and drink with people that society said you shouldn't be doing that with. The kingdom of God is going to look, people, listen, so much different than anything that we think it is going to look like. One day we will sit, as Revelation 19 talks about, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the head of the table, will be a Jewish man named Jesus Christ who has welcomed us all there and who has paid the price for our ticket to be there. We sit at the table with also 12 apostles, 12 Jew Jewish men. We will sit with a very eclectic and diverse uh, family of God. And we will sit there and we will have to understand this, that the only reason that we are there and a part of the kingdom of God is because the head of the table has welcomed them there and brought us there all by grace. All by, by, by his works, the, the life he lived, the price that he paid. Literally, and, and if you go into a, a casino and you go into debt, you need to pay your way out of debt. You can never cash in your debt for a jackpot. In Christianity, we take all of our debt to the table. And, and, and what we get in return is we get the full measure of a jackpot. We get the full measure of grace. We get the full measure of acceptance, approval, and love. Quite literally, he takes all the responsibility of our sin on himself. And so he becomes, 
a sinner. He, he, he literally takes that, owns that, and that is what he becomes in the moment of the cross. And then what he literally does is he, is he gives to us his righteousness, his perfection, his, perfuity, uh, his purity, and he makes that ours. And so now that literally becomes ours. And so one day when we all sit there, we will understand that we are, we are at the table of grace. We are held at the table of grace. We have been held for eternity, or we will be held for eternity, all by the man who sits at the head of the table, Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is going to be diverse, and it's going to be eclectic, and there's going to be people that will make us uncomfortable by their presence, or people that we would at least expect not be there. Let me cite Brennan Manning. And a quote that he said, this isn't his exact quote, but something very similar. Um, let, let's hold off on the slide because I have uh, something that's uh, just slightly different. So, cool. Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. The insecure pastor addicted to being liked who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love. The sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street. The deathbed convert for who decades has had his cake and ate it too. Broken every law of God. Wallowed in lust and pillaged the earth. But how, we ask, how? The voice says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are. There we are, the multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, and beat down by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. And I would go one step further and say, who actually realized that it's Christ who's clung and hung on to us. That's Brennan Manning. That's what the kingdom of God is going to be like. So Philip shows up preaching and proclaiming the man the anointed one, the Messiah, and the message of what he has done. He has welcomed the outcast. He has welcomed the, uh, he has welcomed the broken. And, and Christ alone has the ability to tear down the walls of hostility, to tear down the walls of division, to tear down the walls of racism. He, he and he alone, when we lift him up, can bring all people together. If you look at his ragtag group of followers, that's what he did. I mean, he, 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 he had in it a zealot, and he had a tax collector. He had people... Uh, just politically, uh, just just on different pages. And that's what Christ does because we have something greater that unites us. We have a greater identity that brings us together that we have not paid for or purchased, but that he purchased for us. We are gathered in and around the person, the man, and the message and what he has done. And that's what unites and brings people together. That is what tears down the racism. That is what brings us together to, as a body. And we see that something beautiful happens, that people were baptized, both men and women, that's why baptism is so important for a few reasons. One, it is an outward declaration of what Christ has done inward, is that he's made us new, he's washed us, he's cleansed us. But it also says this, is that you're now part of a new family, the kingdom of God, an eternal family. And, this, and, and in this family, this is going to be your family for life. We will have brothers and sisters who, who don't align with us on, on, on every topic of, of just secondary doctrinal issues. We will have brothers and sisters in Christ who look different from us. We will have brothers and sisters in Christ who are ethnically different from us. But here's the reality. Right now in our culture and our society, we are typically lifting up something other than the man and the message and putting that in front of people when all reality, our culture will tell us that you need to find your identity in your uh, socioeconomic class. You need to find your identity in your ethnic race. You need to find your identity 
and, and all these things you can and can't do. But the reality is the Bible tells us so clearly, Galatians 3.28, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that we are all in Christ. We have something greater even than our ethnic race. It's not to say you have to do away with your uh, um, Jewish race. It's not to say that we have to do away with, with our ethnicities at all, but we have something greater than our ethnic race that binds us together. We have the man and the message of Jesus Christ who gives us a new identity. Last, we have the mission. We see in verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This, is, this text, unfortunately, is, is, is used and abused for uh, a doctrine called the second blessing, where um, you need to be slain in the Spirit, have people lay your hands on you, and then you need to speak in tongues. That's actually not what's going on here. What this is is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live on mission as Christians. What, it's a beautiful picture first that God welcomes all people into his kingdom, even people like the Samaritans who the Jews did not think would be a part of the kingdom of God. And so they sent their chief apostles down, uh, which were Peter and John, to say, look, we're going down there. We're going to lay our hands on them. We're stepping into the unclean territory. We're going beyond enemy lines. We're going to them. We're laying our hands on them. They are receiving the spirit of God. They received the same man, the same message. Now they're receiving the same spirit. And what we are here through our presence as, as chief apostles doing is showing that there's no more dividing wall of hostility. There's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more black and white. There is no more of this Jew and Samaritan. Together what we have is a unity provided in Christ. And so they went on mission. And that's what happens when we meet the man and we are uh, uh, introduced to the message and the message doesn't just save us. It's not just salvific, but it's transformative. It actually transforms the way that we live our lives. And here's what I mean. It transforms the way that we live on mission. If, if we have met the man and we have met the message and we understand that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, that changes the way that we love people, interact with people, and engage on mission. We see this here by Philip. We see it by the Apostle Paul. Uh, I, I'm sorry, by, uh, by uh, Peter. And we also see it by John. But what we see is this, is that if we put the mission, which our culture is also doing, in front of the man, in front of the message, then the problem with that is, is that sometimes we can um, base our standing with God, our right standing with God, based upon our moral performance. The mission must flow out of the man and out of the message, what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. Then we go out of this new identity on mission. But we don't go on mission first trying to earn our right standing with God. Also, we have to lead on mission with the man and with the message. Because if we just go, and I want to say this, I do absolutely believe that there are systems and structures that need to be deconstructed, that need to be assessed, that need to be torn down because sinful man in our state of total depravity builds broken structures. But I believe that what needs to happen, and I, say, I want to say this with humility, is that the church, those that are made new in Christ, need to be the ones that are out on the front lines, on mission, actually looking at the systems and structures in place. And the church is the people that are best equipped to handle that. Here's the reason why. If we just send secular people into the world they might fix a structure, they might fix a system, they might fix some problems, but here's the reality. That's all secondary because the greatest fixing that we need is something eternal. We need a new heart, we need a new life, and so the church is best equipped because as they go in and assess and deconstruct and reconstruct and build, what they do is they go in with the man and the message and they're able to present the greatest need, but they're also able to, to, to provide 
um, uh, um, just a way forward with what it looks like to deconstruct. And an example of that, which might make some of you uncomfortable, is Scarlet Hope Ministries. They are not people um, that, that are in support of sex trafficking. They stand against it. They are not in support of uh, um, brothels. They're not in support of, of strip clubs or anything like that. But what they actually do is they go into strip clubs and they minister to the women. They do their makeup, they bring them meals, and they do stuff like that. And here's the reality. If just a secular person goes in, they might go in and just tell them that you're awesome. What the church does is we go in and, and we build relationships. We love people on mission, but we tell people of the greatest need that they have. That's why us, uh, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon's Church, they built this big orphanage. We need the church doing stuff like that because when we do that, we don't just build something and say, here, provide housing for kids. We provide the gospel, the man and the message, and then we provide housing. So I believe the church is the best one to go after building up and, and, and tearing down and then rebuilding structures and systems that sinful man has built instead of letting um, sinful man who's not led by the Spirit go and do those things as well. Last, I'll say this. We will never cross ethnic barriers. We will never cross social barriers unless we are confronted with the man and the message and with grace daily. Until grace permeates every area of our lives, until it confronts us, until we see our desperate need for us, we won't. But my challenge to our church, Gospel Community Church this day, is my, my, my plea is this, is a lot of people are reading a lot of stuff and I think that's good. Please live in the word. The word speaks to what's going on right now, but also I'm, I, th this, is, this is my challenge. In the next month, will you please step across whatever you view as an enemy line, whatever the territory that is that's hard for you to cross. If you're Eugene, maybe it's hanging out with Springfield. If it's Springfield, maybe it's hanging out from, with someone from Eugene. If you're Republican, maybe it's having dinner with the Democrat. If you're Democrat, maybe with a Republican. Whatever it is, if it's inviting someone over to your house who, who, who's, who's of a different ethnicity, if it's inviting someone over to your house that just believes and thinks totally different than you, Please step beyond our, our, our barriers that we have placed up through the man and the message of Jesus Christ. We see him stepping beyond his barriers, social barriers and everything to enter into our world, to offer us the greatest gift of salvation and the message of the gospel. I said at the beginning of this that I was going to share an embarrassing story and totally forgot to. So here's the story that I'll share um, just as we close out today. Is just to... <laughs> Just to understand uh, that we can be so shaped by our passions and our passions and our identity can, can be intermixed, I would say this. It's a couple years ago, I wish I, could say it was long, I wish I could say it was longer than that, but it's not. A couple years ago, I was playing basketball with a group of guys from the church, and uh, one of the guys was Andrew Simpson. Sorry, Andrew, still, if you're listening. But uh, during the basketball game, I just got so frustrated, and so I turned around and I uh, slapped Andrew uh, just before you don't slap a man. And so in, the, in, in that moment... It is absolutely stupid. In that moment, I was finding my identity and my performance on the basketball court, which is absolutely ridiculous. I'm never making it to the NBA. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere with my basketball career. It was ridiculous. But here's the reality, is that we, we right now in our culture, mix so much uh, um, our, our passions and our identity, and, and, and we mix so much stuff to where I can see that I was finding my identity in that moment in, in, in something that I do or, or how I present myself. Or, or, uh, and right now, we are doing the same thing. It is the same cycle that, uh, that, that, that we spin and that we run in. So my encouragement to us, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to look at our identity and how our identity in Christ is the ultimate identity that we need as we look at saints and society. But I hope this week we remember that we have a grace-purchased identity and that identity 
was purchased for us by the man through the message, and it should shape in way, or it should shape the way that we live on mission. So let's go and present that to the world. Also, just as a heads up, my family is walking in right now as I'm closing out in prayer. I can hear the front door turning, and so uh, just bear with me as I pray and wrap us up rather quickly. So. Father, we love you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for the man, the, uh, the message, and the mission. Lead us to go where it's uncomfortable for us to go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.